Welcome to Bible study. We're studying through the book of Acts. We're studying through it because we want to relive it. And, uh, wow, I think we already are, at least we're starting to. And I'm excited about Acts chapter 2 and the events that are contained within. I trust tonight that as we study them and take a closer look, that it will indeed excite you and inspire you to pursue this for yourself. So let's pray and then we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege we have tonight to gather around the open pages of your written word. As we read the word and study it, may we see Jesus more clearly. Holy Spirit, teach us, lead and guide us into all truth. Uh, Lord, may anything that I say tonight that does not represent you, uh, may it be Be struck from the memory of the listener, and may only what you say and only what you want said be said tonight and be remembered. And so we ask these things now in your precious name. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. What we'll do is we'll read, then we'll look at the notes, and we'll make some comments. So we're going verse by verse, precept upon precept. The Bible interprets itself. And the best way to understand what one passage means is to read the passages before it and after it and to read passages elsewhere in the Bible that explain and support that passage. So here we are. Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Acts chapter 2 records the fulfillment of Pentecost, the Old Testament feast. It records Peter's sermon And it tells us a bit about what the early church looked like, uh, what they devoted themselves to, what they practiced. Uh, It tells us about their, uh, to use a word from Sunday morning, orthopraxy. Now, we probably won't get to the end of chapter 2 tonight, but if we do, that'll be great. But let's take our time, and if any questions arise throughout the study, get my attention, raise your hand, or speak up. I'd love to hear from you as well. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Who were the all that were together? Well, those who were in the upper room, the 120 who witnessed Christ's ascension and who heard him say, go to Jerusalem and wait for power from on high. So they went and they waited. We learned last week they waited for about 10 days. They waited until the day of Pentecost, until the day of Pentecost arrived. Jesus uh, and his spirit, or sorry, Jesus sending his spirit on the day of Pentecost is the fulfillment of the Old Testament feast. Pentecost took place 50 days after the feast of first fruits. As uh, the feast of Passover depicts the death of Christ and the feast of first fruits depicts the resurrection of Christ, the feast of Pentecost depicts the beginning and origin of the church. 
one of the practices of Pentecost in the Old Testament uh, was the bringing in of new leaven. During Passover, the old leaven that was in the house would be swept out and discarded. And then at Pentecost, new leaven would be brought in. That's why during Passover and until Pentecost, um, the, the Jewish people only ate unleavened bread. Bread that had not, doesn't have any yeast in it, did not rise or does not rise. And so this Feast of Pentecost depicts something new coming in, the arrival of something new. And we know Jesus told a lot of parables about yeast, that a little bit goes a long way, that a little bit leavens the whole lump, that it permeates and spreads out and has a massive effect, even just a small amount of it. And so Christ sending the Holy Spirit on that day fulfills the Old Testament shadow that was the Feast of Pentecost, that one day God was going to send something, particularly someone, who would bring in a new era, that the old era would be swept out and a new era would come, that an old covenant would be fulfilled and a new one would be established. What Bethlehem was to the birth of Christ Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem were to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus began to baptize believers on this day and in Jerusalem, which means he placed them in the body of Christ. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ, to be placed in his body and to be identified with Christ. Hey guys, welcome. There's a couple of handouts there for you. So Jerusalem doesn't play a significant role in the birth of Jesus. Um, Jesus spends his early life in Galilee, in the city of Nazareth, or the town of Nazareth, village really. Uh, Jerusalem doesn't even play a huge role in his ministry, although at the end of his ministry, the Bible says he sets his face like a flint towards Jerusalem because he knows he's going to have to go to Jerusalem where the temple is to offer himself as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, to fulfill Passover. But he also tells his disciples to go wait in Jerusalem. He doesn't tell them to go to Nazareth or Uh, Any other significant place in his life and ministry, he says, go to Jerusalem. You need to be there in that city specifically on a specific day so that I can fulfill another Old Testament feast, so that I can fulfill Pentecost. Uh, Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 12. So you remember, we talked last week about how John baptized with water, and it was a symbolic baptism, but Jesus said that um, he was going to baptize with fire, and it was a, a real 
baptism, it wasn't just a ritual, it was real. And this baptism in fire does a number of things. And one of the things is it does is it uh, places us in the body of Christ and gives us a brand new identity. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. So on the day of Pentecost, it's interesting, these Jewish people who were followers of Jesus during his life and ministry were told to go to Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, and wait for the Holy Spirit baptism. And immediately what would happen is when they were baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit, they would be put in one body with Christ, but not just Jews, Gentiles as well. And so that's going to be pretty challenging uh, for these Jewish believers uh, to hear a message, a gospel message that's directed to the Gentiles. But we'll get there. That's Peter's sermon. First, let's talk about the arrival of the Holy Spirit. So verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Uh, Suddenly is always a prophetic word in the scriptures, and it doesn't always, very rarely does it ever refer to something happening quickly. Uh, They were waiting for 10 days, and then suddenly. um, All of a sudden, all at once, it happens, but oftentimes there's a lot of tarrying that leads up to these suddenlies. And so it says, suddenly there came from heaven a sound. It wasn't actually a wind, it was the sound of a wind. At least that's what the Bible tells us. It was a sound like a mighty rushing wind and the sound is what filled the entire house where they were sitting. It was not a wind but a sound. A sound like a rushing mighty wind. It must have sounded like a tornado or a hurricane. So much so that all of Jerusalem evidently heard it. Um, I was doing some research there. How loud is a tornado? Uh, A tornado has the sound, uh, the decibel level, of about a thousand freight trains. I spent some time with mom this past summer at Lakeshore Camp. The train goes by there. Seems like all day every day, but there is some time in between. But when it goes by, you hear it. You hear it. Now, everybody says they get used to it when they're there long enough, but it's loud. Can you imagine a thousand going by at once? Uh, It's likely that that was the sound that was heard throughout all Jerusalem, and a sound that loud would be heard throughout all Jerusalem. It would get everyone's attention, not just the people that were in the room, but the whole city. And uh, this 
this sound was an invitation. It was an invitation. So listen, God does things loud. The Bible says that he speaks in a still small voice, but he makes his invitation loudly. Think about it. Uh, What happened after the sound of this wind filled the house where they were sitting, verse 3 tells us, divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Divided tongues as of fire. Means that it was not actual fire, of course, but it looked like it. Um, It appeals to the eye. It catches the attention. There was a home on our street that caught fire this summer, and everybody on the street was out looking at it and watching the house burn. Thankfully, it didn't burn down, and the neighbor's house wasn't affected. But fire draws a crowd. It catches people's attention. Uh, The commotion surrounding a fire catches one's eye. It draws one to it. And I believe that's why uh, there was the sound of wind and the appearance of fire. It caught people's attention. It drew them to the source of the sound and the source of the appearance. And what happened in verse 4 is that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All filled with the Holy Spirit. It indicates that all the other ministries of the Holy Spirit to believers in this age, which is the age of grace, had already been a Uh, had already been performed as they had occurred. Uh, The baptism of regeneration, the baptism of indwelling, the baptism of sealing. They had all taken place. The experience of Pentecost came from the filling of the Holy Spirit, not just The baptizing. Remember, Jesus said he would baptize in the Holy Spirit, and we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, that this baptism was a baptism into the body. Okay? Uh, But uh, the filling of the Spirit is not the baptizing of the Spirit. The baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit places all those who are baptized in the church, in the new body, that came into existence here for the first time. The filling is different, and the filling is unique from the Old Covenant reality. Uh, In the Old Covenant, the Spirit never filled anyone. The Spirit rested upon people. And then when the work of the Spirit was done, the Spirit lifted, the Spirit departed. In the New Testament, the New Covenant reality, the Spirit comes, the Spirit fills, and the Spirit stays. The Spirit doesn't depart from the person who is baptized in the Spirit because they are baptized into one body. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it says that we are one. We are one Spirit with Christ. 
So we've been made one with him. And once you've been made one with Christ, there's really no being unmade one with Christ. Certainly as much as it depends on him. And a lot of times we think we've been made on one. We try to be made on one. And yet, though we think we're separated from him, he's right there. You felt that in your life, haven't you? You felt like you were a million miles away from him? Or you felt like he was a million miles away from you until you got your perspective changed and you realized, oh my goodness, he's been right there the whole time. Let's talk about the other tongues for a moment. And we've done quite a bit of conversation about these other tongues. Uh, especially in our Twisted Scripture series. To be sure, and the rest of, or the surrounding verses will prove this, but to be sure, the other tongues that are mentioned here are not unknown tongues, but they are the polyglot, or the multiple languages of the Roman Empire. Remember I said Jesus told his disciples, go wait in Jerusalem specifically uh, for a day because he said don't, for, for a specific day, because he said don't leave there until you receive power from on high. Don't leave a day before and don't leave a day after. Stay in the upper room until you have received power. Then go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Because Jesus had a very specific moment that he was going to send his spirit. And he was going to give a sign that his spirit had been given. And that sign was the miraculous ability to speak in other languages. The languages of the Roman Empire. Spoken by the worshipers who had come from the different areas of the Roman Empire. And we'll read that in uh, verses 5 to 11. Um, but before we do, let me just make a couple of, of, of comments. Um, the, the Feast of Pentecost, or the Festival of Pentecost, was also known as the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. Basically what would happen on the Feast of Pentecost is that Jerusalem would be turned into one big farmer's market. And people from all over the, the world would bring their wares, they would bring their sacrifices, and they would bring uh, their harvests and different things to Jerusalem, first to offer them to God, and then also to sell them and make their living during this feast. And so there was people celebrating this feast and participating in this feast from all over the Roman world. There were a lot of people, a lot of Jews that would come to Jerusalem. And so this was also a very lucrative time for unbelievers to go to Jerusalem and to profit from all the people that would be in one place at one time. Obviously, there was no online marketplace at that time. You had to go to where the people were. And so a lot of a lot of people, not just Jews and not just worshipers, were in Jerusalem on that day. But there was all kinds of people there because of this festival. So let's, let's now read with that understanding as to why all these people are here. 
Let's now read why the sign of the infilling of the Holy Spirit was speaking in other languages. Verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, what sound? The sound of the rushing wind. The multitude, all the people that were in Jerusalem, came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished. Look what they said. Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? What language did they expect them to be speaking? (laughs) They expected these Galileans to be speaking Aramaic. Verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own language? Parthians. He's going to list them here. There's no second guessing. Parthians and Medes, Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya that are belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? two reactions. What does this mean? Curiosity. But others mocked and said, they're drunk. They're filled with new wine. There's always two reactions to the gospel, to prophesying the works and wonders of God. Further curiosity or mockery. And if you've ever shared the gospel with someone, if you've shared the gospel with more than one person, you've probably gotten both reactions. Some have been curious, and some have said, you're crazy. See, Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from on high, and then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How on earth were they going to do that if the only language they knew was Aramaic, and if they were uneducated and didn't have access to education and the ability to learn, go to school and learn these languages, they were going to have to be given the ability to do so miraculously. And what's amazing is Jesus gives them a head start. He says, go and wait. Jesus knows when, but go and wait for a little while. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, when everybody was there from all over the world, he gives them this this ability, this power to speak in other human languages, the works and wonders of God. Verse 12. Oh, we already read verse 12 and 13. Yeah, 14. 
This is where Peter addresses the skeptics and the curious. So they're up in the upper room, speaking in other tongues, speaking in other languages. And what's interesting, too, about the other languages is it's not just other languages, but, oh yeah, so look at verse 6. It says, And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then down in verse 11, it says, we hear them telling in our own tongue. And so those are two different Greek words. One means language, one is glossa, which means language, like just the, the basic meaning of a language. But the word tongue here means dialect. And so this was very specific. It wasn't just, you know, if you knew some like Canadian French and you went to Paris and you spoke your Canadian French, they would look at you like you had two heads because though it's French, it's not the same French. You're not speaking the same tongue. You're not speaking the same dialect. It might be the same language, but it's not the same dialect. And what's happening here is they're miraculously speaking the same language and also the specific dialects of each of the people, of each of the listeners, which is just amazing. It's just fascinating how God does that. He doesn't leave anything to chance. He does everything perfectly, and uh, he represents himself very well, which is incredible. So here Peter addresses the crowd. Look at verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. This is the first time Peter is going to obey Jesus. When Jesus said, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. This is Peter's first chance to do that. He's going to feed the sheep with the word of God. He gets up and he addresses the crowd. He says, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now Peter is going to, um, he's going to quote the prophet Joel. What's amazing, right? These are uneducated fishermen. And yet they spent three years with Jesus. And in that time, Jesus taught them so many wonderful things, so many profound things that they didn't understand fully during his life and ministry. That's why Jesus would often say to them, do you still not understand? How long must I bear with you? But after they saw the resurrected Christ, it all made sense. And after they were empowered with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit did what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do in John 16. He will bring to your remembrance everything I said and did. And so here's evidence of that. Peter gets up, and by the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he preaches this powerful gospel message with Old Testament scripture quotes under the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so let's read the entire prophecy and then we'll make a couple of comments. This is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your younger men shall see visions and your older men shall dream dreams. 
even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a powerful prophecy uttered hundreds of years before Peter said that it was fulfilled. And it's still being fulfilled 2,000 years later. We still live in the last days. Uh, in fact, if those were the last days, just imagine how last these last days are 2,000 years later. That's why I say we want to study this book because we want to relive it. We don't have to go to an upper room in Jerusalem and wait for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. He's already come. He's already in the earth. And, and we've already been baptized by the Spirit. We've already been baptized into the body of Christ. But we're also asking that if we haven't been, to be infilled with the Holy Spirit. And if we've been infilled with the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul talks in Ephesians about how we need to be being filled, constantly filled, just being poured into so that we can overflow. We want to relive it. And some of the things that happen when we relive Pentecost is that sons and daughters prophesy. Young men see visions. Old men dream dreams. Men and women, even the least in society, the servants, they receive the Spirit and they prophesy. And then God shows wonders in the heavens. And it's interesting, the wonders in heaven that he talks about here are kind of, not kind of, they're the wonders that, that happen in the heavens during the Great Tribulation. That's why I say, when, when Peter says, this is the last days and this is what the prophet Joel spoke of, it wasn't just for like that day and the years, the, the few years surrounding it. It's up until now. Because Peter says it's fulfilled, and he's talking about stuff that hasn't even happened yet, but he's saying this was the fulfillment of it. You get what I'm saying there? And I'm going to mention this on Sunday when we talk about the, uh, the spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts. A lot of denominations think there's no, there's no more spiritual gifts, that it's over, that it's closed, that when the New Testament was complete, the signs were done away with. I don't believe that. I believe this, the gifts have continued. That God is still showing signs and wonders in the earth and in the heavens above. Now, the signs he's showing here are signs of judgment. Blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Which says to me that in our preaching of the gospel, in our prophesying, the works and wonders of God, just like they did on the day of Pentecost, we must include preaching about the judgment of God. Otherwise, we're not preaching the whole counsel of God. And we do the world a disservice. 
You know, a lot of people say to me, not in this church, but people who've heard me preach recently, they say things like, Matt, like, stop talking about sin and that. Just talk about the love of God and let the Holy Spirit deal with people's sin. I ask myself, do you even read the Bible? Do you even, do you even read? Have you ever read the first sermon in the church? Peter's talking about blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the judgment of God. Have you ever read Romans chapter 1 that says the wrath of God is being stored up for the day of judgment? Listen, I don't want to be a part of it. I don't want my friends and family to be a part of it. It will be a great and terrible day, and we can escape it. But we have to preach about it. We have to mention it. Don't forget, the wrath of God is being stored up right now. We live in the age of grace where the wrath of God is being held back, but it's stored up. And one day it's going to be released. God's justice will prevail. Right now it's mercy and grace. Um, It's patience. God is not willing that any should perish. He's giving us time. Uh, But his justice will prevail. He can be both loving and just. And in fact, there is no love without justice. But God is holding back his hand. If he didn't hold back his hand, we'd all be consumed. We wouldn't be here tonight. Uh, But God is patiently waiting. He's patiently calling. But his judgment's being stored up. So Peter preaches this message on the day of Pentecost. And as Julius points out, uh, he also mentions that in his letter that he writes to uh, the elect exiles of the dispersion, all the people that were persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ who believed this message on day one and who found themselves persecuted and hated and given over to governing authorities. He has to write them and say, don't lose hope. The judgment is coming. It's being stored up. And though you might be persecuted now, your salvation is being kept for you in heaven. It's your living hope. Look forward to it because it's there. It's imperishable. It's undefiled and unfading. As you can tell, my New Year's resolution is to memorize more scripture. So I just get on these tangents. I start rhyming it off. Sorry. Where are we? Okay. Yeah, so let's let's read that little paragraph there in the notes. Peter does not use Joel's prophecy to show that Pentecost um, is, is the fulfillment of it. But this is that. So it's not just the Old Testament festival of Pentecost that fulfills Joel's prophecy. It's the, the infilling of the, the, the sending of the Spirit, the baptizing of the Spirit, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And... Uh, yeah, what, what the note says there, what it's conveying is that it's not over. And I already, I already pointed that out. That it's not just what happened on the day of Pentecost that fulfilled Joel's prophecy, but that fulfillment continues to happen because God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. To this point, it was only 120 people. It was going to continue to all flesh. 
So that's why I say there's a continuation. There's a continued pouring out throughout every generation. I will pour out my spirit. So there's 120 that first get it, then Peter preaches, and then we read in a few moments that there's 3,000 people that get it. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This Jesus who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And Peter doesn't hold back. Peter's not concerned about preaching about the love of God and letting the Holy Spirit deal with their sin. Peter accuses the the listener of crucifying Jesus. This Jesus who you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Well, God raised him up and he loosed the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And now he's going to quote David. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I might not be forsaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is, this is Jesus talking to the Father. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption, see decay. I won't, I won't rot in a grave. You have made known to me the paths of life, And you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter quotes Psalm 16. That he would be raised from the dead and sit on David's throne. Verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. So he quotes David, but he says, now, I'm not talking about David here. I'm talking about this same Jesus. He's the one who was not abandoned to the place of the dead. He was uh, the one who didn't see corruption. Being therefore a prophet, verse 30, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would not... Uh, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That Christ was not abandoned to Hades and that Christ's flesh did not see corruption or decay. And this Jesus, God raised up. And of that resurrection, we are all witnesses. Who's the we he's talking about? The 120. Who was comprised of about 500 witnesses to his resurrection. 500 people saw him raised. 120 people went to the upper room. 120 people were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches, and now something amazing is going to happen in a few moments. Verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
In verse 36, oh, sorry, not verse 36, verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 110. Let's take a look at that. The Psalms are uh, obviously beautiful scriptures and beautiful songs, poems. Where am I here? Many of them are worshipful, but a number of them are also prophetic. It's been said that David, though he lived under the Old Covenant, probably had the greatest awareness of the New Covenant reality. Um, David was the one who was more concerned about worshiping God from the heart rather than just performing rituals and ceremonies. Um, yeah. And so David had this new covenant reality, and so I believe that's, or that's why I believe he was also used in a prophetic way. He was not considered a prophet, of course. He was a king, uh, but he was used in a prophetic way. Let's read his 110th psalm because it's a prophetic psalm, and see where we can, let's see if we can see Jesus. A psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by his way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In other words, he will be victorious. It's said of David that um, you know, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Well, if that's true of David, then Christ has slain his tens of millions, his tens of billions, that... Um, he will execute his righteous judgment, his just judgment on the earth one day. But not until the fullness of time has passed. Not until the moment that he has set, that not even Jesus knows. Only the Father in heaven knows. And on that day, his wrath will be poured out and it will be a just outpouring. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has, has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. The explanation of all that had occurred 
is the fact that Jesus died, rose again, ascended, and had taken his place at the right hand of God. So if you're ever wondering how to preach the gospel or you know, what to say to an unbeliever, just memorize this pattern. It was the first gospel message ever preached. If it's the first one, it's probably the best one. And so Peter here stands up and he preaches that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, that Jesus went to heaven, and that Jesus rules at the right hand of God the Father. That's pretty easy to remember. When you talk about why Jesus, because when you talk about Jesus dying, you can talk about why he died, that he died to save us from the penalty of sin, from the wrath of God. The wages of sin is death. Jesus paid our wages. But Jesus didn't stay dead. We are forgiven by his death, but we're saved by his life. We're raised to newness of life. John 10.10 says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. How could Jesus say, I came to give you life and have it abundantly if he was lying in a grave somewhere? He can't. But because his body didn't see corruption, because he was not abandoned to Hades, because he rose again, we too can have life and be assured of the promise of eternal life. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. He's in control. He's in charge. He's the boss. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's worthy of our allegiance. He's worthy of our faithfulness and our worship. And if he's there, well, we know that he's going to come back from there. Because as we read last week, this same Jesus, who you see going, will come back one day just as he left. Go ahead. Mm, beautiful and excellent point to make that Jesus is at the right hand praying for us. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So these little things, they can trigger that sort of, um, that sort of preaching when we're talking to someone across the table at the coffee shop or in the break room at work or wherever. If you remember these things, that he died, he rose again, he ascended. You can fill in the blanks all around that. Sometimes we go, how would I, where do I start? What do I say? Just say those three things and then let the Holy Spirit start filling it in. You'll be surprised what comes out of you. Where are we here? We got a couple of minutes left. Everybody still good? All right, let's keep going. Now, when they had heard all this, look at, what, look at what happened. Look at the reaction. They were cut to the heart. Okay, so they first, they first heard the other languages, or they've heard their languages. They heard the works and wonders of God. There was two reactions. Curiosity or mockery. But Peter brought some clarity. He brought some clarification. He, he preached a gospel message. And the only response to the gospel message is conviction. They were cut to the heart. See, the unbeliever can come into our service and, and see all kinds of stuff, 
feel all kinds of stuff. And their reaction to that can be good or bad, positive, negative, skeptical, or, or they can believe. But when they hear the gospel message, there is only one response. It's conviction. Now, there's two responses to conviction. You can either obey it, like you can either reject it or accept it. But the gospel cuts to the heart because the gospel is the word of God that's sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts. It's not a soft pool noodle. It's a two-edged sword. It can divide soul and spirit. It knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Nothing else can do that. Only the Bible, only the gospel. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we do? What do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. So he says, repent, change your mind. Don't keep going the way you were going. Turn around. Turn to Jesus. Repent. And be baptized. Remember, difference between baptism and infilling. The baptism is a baptism in fire. It takes you from where you are and places you in the body. You're in Christ. You're in the body. That's why he says, repent and be baptized into the body of Christ. Come in. You are welcome. Every one of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the gift of the Holy Spirit? The infilling. And there's an assurance that Peter gives. He said, you will be. Not you might be. You will be. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That's you and I. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to the church that day about 3,000 souls. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out here, I mean, I don't do it a whole lot, but, well, actually, I do. Like, I mean, by comparison, I do. I don't do it on social media anymore, but I do often talk about the situation in our world when I preach. I, I bring those things up. I talk about it with you uh, on one-on-one on -one or like at the breakfast table and different things. We talk about the things that are going on in the world, the corruption and the perversion and things like that. And a lot of people criticize that in me and say, you know, you really shouldn't talk about what's going on out there in here, you know. You, you know, you shouldn't really talk about, like, politics and all that stuff. And, and, again, do they read the Bible? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Okay? Exactly. If we're told to be not of this world, well, we need to define that. 
Okay, so we need to define what of this world means. And listen, I've been as guilty of this as, as anyone to say those very same things which I am now being criticized of. So I understand that. I can understand where people are coming from, and yet, once you see it, you just, you just can't unsee it. Uh, and so we, we, have ex, we have a biblical record here of Peter on the day of Pentecost exhorting people to save themselves from a crooked and a perverse generation, from a corrupt society and from corrupt leaders, from uh, unrighteous men who suppress the truth. And so it was with all that kind of preaching, the, all of Acts chapter 2, there's prophecy going on. There's people declaring the works and wonders of God. Then there's, there's the quotation of Old Testament scriptures. And there's, um, you know, parallels being made to Jesus Christ. And there's a gospel message being preached. And then there's reference being made to Peter saying, listen, the people out there, the, the rulers of this world, they're, they're corrupt, they're crooked, they're leading you astray. Don't follow them. Follow Jesus. And with that kind of preaching and that kind of ministry, verse 41 tells us that those who heard the word were baptized. Baptized into the body. And there were added that day 3,000 souls. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point you make. And just in case you didn't hear it, a lot of times people make the criticism of that kind of preaching and that kind of talk because they're desensitized to what true holiness is and what we've been called to. And so when they hear somebody call out things that are unholy and unrighteous, it, it, it causes them to recoil and say, well, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very Christian. That sounds pretty judgmental. Well, actually, there's a, there's a lot of judgment that takes place under the new covenant. Uh, a lot of a lot of inspection, a lot of self-reflection that's required of the believer. Um, we're, we're told to put on certain things and put off certain things and put to death certain things. And uh, we're called to set our minds on the things above, not on the things below. And so that requires us to make these contrasts and these judgments as to what is the thing above and what is a thing below and what are the differences and how do I set my mind on that? You see how we have to make judgments, we have to make decisions as to what we put on and what we put off? Uh, we don't need to judge other people. We'll have a full-time job making those judgments for ourselves. But when given the opportunity, when somebody asks the question, or uh, when we're given the opportunity to, to preach and teach the gospel, do not um, neglect to mention the idea of holiness and God's wrath against unrighteousness, and that it can be escaped freely. All one has to do is confess and believe. It's, it's a free gift. The wages of sin is death. You, everyone has to pay it unless they receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life. And you receive that free gift by belief, which is absolutely incredible. So I think we'll leave it there. Uh, I'll still have a time if you have a question or a comment. But we'll leave it there for tonight and we'll pick up next week at Acts 2.42, which is 
a really amazing passage about the fellowship of the believers and what they devoted themselves to their their orthopraxy. 